Romans chapter 14, verse 1 says, Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. It may be obvious to say, maybe you know this, maybe you don't know this, but when Paul wrote the book of Romans, he did not write it in chapter form with chapter breaks. It was just a continuous writing. So when you sit down and you read chapter 14 and you think about the books that you read on a daily basis that you get from the library, you read chapter one, and especially in our day and age, chapter one of the book has its own subject, and then chapter two is a whole different subject, and chapter three and on through the book, each chapter having its own subject. But you can't read the Bible that way. Chapter 14 is building on and continuous with chapter 13, because when Paul wrote, it was just a continuous thing. So he's flowing right from one idea into the next. So to get a good running start and to understand why Paul is telling the people in Rome to receive people, to welcome people who are weak in the faith, and not to dispute or to argue over doubtful things, you have to understand that he's explaining to us that we owe no one anything except to love. And what does love look like in the context of different people at different places in their walk with God, with different backgrounds, and when we differ in our opinions about the way we do our lives? How does love look when I disagree with somebody? We scratched the surface of that topic last week. We're going to dive in this week, and for the next two weeks, we'll be talking about what I would call gray matters. Now, those of you that have a biology background know that gray matter describes neurological material in your brain, so it's a little bit of a play on words. Gray matters are matters that are not specifically delineated in the Word of God. The Bible speaks to all the issues of our lives. It has something to say about all of the issues of our lives, but it doesn't speak about every individual specific issue of our lives. And that's why there are debatable issues in the church. One of the things I love about coming to church here is I love the diversity that we enjoy at Calvary Chapel Fluvanna. We have some racial diversity. We have some age diversity. We have economic diversity. And one of the most interesting things to me is we have a lot of religious diversity. And when I say that, I mean, we've come from all kinds of backgrounds. If I was to have people raise hands, we could go from Mennonite to fundamentalist Baptist to Mormon to Jehovah's Witness to Methodist to Anglican, Episcopalian, Catholic, all over the board. And that means we come with all of the traditions or all of the background that is fed into how we see our church lives, and religious practice. And we enjoy that diversity. And the cool thing I like about coming here is when I come here, I don't see a lot of carbon copies of everybody. Like we don't all look the same and dress the same. Have you ever been to a church where that's the case? You ever been to a church where everybody's wearing the same thing? All the guys have on the same shirt and the same tie and the same pants, the same shoes, and all the women have, well, the dress is different, but the length is the same. And you walk in, you're like, okay, this is like the twilight zone. This is weird. So I think, and I think I have the Lord on this, I think that one of the signs that a church body is getting grace and love is that we're free to enjoy diversity. Where there's nobody trying to plug you in and conform you into the image of the church. Remember, this section started with Paul saying, don't be conformed to the image of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. And the danger we run is that 
we tell people, don't be conformed to the image of the world. Don't be pressed into that mold. But then we create a mold in our tradition. We create a mold in our denomination by which then we try to press people into looking just like us. And really, Paul is still addressing the issues of don't think too highly of yourself and don't be wise in your own opinion. And that's what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with matters of opinion. So he says, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. In the church in Rome, you had Jew and Gentile. The Jews coming from very restrictive backgrounds, very legalistic backgrounds that were very strict in terms of their observances, things they could and could not do. And then you had the Gentiles or the non-Jews who were really coming from a background where they had no restrictions. The gods they worshipped endorsed sexuality, endorsed drinking, endorsed all kinds of what the Jews would call immorality. So you've got these two backgrounds, religious and irreligious, now coming together in one church and trying to figure out how to do life together, as it were, coming from these two vastly different backgrounds. So you can imagine there are disputes among people about what is right and what is wrong. What things do we do and what things do we not do? So notice, first of all, there are doubtful things even in our day. In that day, for them, it was matters of food and days. It was the calendar and it was the menu. But for us, those things aren't as important or not as firsthand in terms of the place where we argue. I made a list of some of the things that we might have questions about. But before I do, I'll read this article. This is a little bit outdated, but it'll exemplify the issue. Amish use of cell phones increases, according to an article April 12, 2007. As I said, a little outdated, but the Lancaster newspaper, The New Era, reported last Friday the results of a series of interviews with Amish people around Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, about their use of cell phones. While some people were opposed to them, many now admit to owning and using them regularly. The Amish bishops, of course, strongly disapprove. But they do not know who actually owns them, and the Amish are increasingly using them anyway. Opinions about them are divided. One Amish man who the paper interviewed indicates that he uses his regularly. He said, cell phones are here to stay, he thinks. Another, however, said that a cell phone would come in handy, but I don't need it. You get your wants and your needs mixed up sometimes. A spokesman for some Amish bishops worried that the Amish people aren't respecting church authority as much as they should regarding the use of cell phones. So that's just kind of an introduction to the mindset, understanding within the Amish community, you know, black cars, no silver, no chrome, and cell phone usage. But what about our communities? What about alcohol? Have you ever had that discussion with somebody? What's the place? Can I have a glass of wine? Or can I have one beer? Well, I can't tell you biblically not to have any alcohol. There's principles involved, but the Bible does prohibit drunkenness. We can say that for sure. You see, because there are debatable issues, that also tells us there are issues that are not debatable. So there are things in the Bible that are absolutely crystal clear and that are delineated things about sexuality versus about you know gossip and lustfulness and all these things you can read and you can go through pride and, and all you can read. That's a list. That, there's no question about that. And there's things in the Bible that are clearly allowed. There's no law against love. There's things that are clearly God says, I want you to do these things. There's no prohibition against them. But then in between those things, there's these gray matters. What about ties versus flip-flops? 
How many of you came from a church? When you went to church, you just got dressed up. You just put on your Sunday best. You wear a tie and a suit, and that's what God wants. You put on your best, and that's your opinion. But there's a lot of people that have the opinion that, no, well, when I go to church, I want to just be comfortable. I want to be who I am. I don't want to dress differently than I do through the week. So we have the opinion, the debate. Is it right to wear a tie and jacket to church? Or is it, can I wear flip-flops and a Hawaiian shirt? <laughs> and you know you're in Calvary Chapel when you do that. <laughs> you know, there's some churches that I would not be welcome to preach at. Same word of God, same person, but I'd have to wear a tie. I would not be welcome to preach in the pulpit if I was not wearing a tie. Internet, social media, what's the usage of that? Which Bible version is the right version? There are those churches that say, well, it's the King James only, and they have their reasons for that. How about this one? What does modesty look like? Oh, yeah, we had some groans on that one. You know, isn't that a tough issue? Moms and dads, you know how you wrestle that out even at home and here in the church, you know? How do we avoid law making rules about skirt length. You know, we're in the day of skinny jeans. I mean, how skinny is too skinny? And whose job is it to make that decision? Because you can't turn to the book of first skinniness, you know, in the Bible, the book of skirt length. So is it mid-thigh? Is it knee? Is it ankle? I mean, who gets to decide? And you see, if you've lived your life, if you were a woman that had lived a life in prostitution, someone shared the gospel with you, and you've got saved, and now you're bringing your life under the leadership of Christ, the authority of Christ. And for you, modesty might look different than a woman who's come out of an Amish background, and she's grown up with feeling a certain way about modesty. You see, so much of this has to do with your background and your culture and where you've come from and learning and growing in understanding of the Word of God. So we talk about modesty, and that's kind of a tough one to pin down. How about tattoos? How about movies? What kind of movies can a Christian watch? Can I watch R-rated movies? Can I watch movies with violence? How about video games? Can I play this kind of video game or that kind of video game? And again, these are not things that are specifically addressed in the Bible. I know a number of years ago, found myself at my parents' house. My dad said, hey, Steve, your mom and I watched this movie. Love you to watch. Great movie. We said, yeah, we'll watch the movie. And we put the movie in and we're watching it. It's an R-rated movie. And at that time, I had no conviction about that. We watch it. While I'm watching, I'm just going, I don't know if I should be wild. Like, I just don't feel right about watching this. And so that day I said, you know what? I'm just done with R-rated movies. Now, saying that, I've also watched a movie called Black Hawk Down. It's a military movie, also rated R. So why did I choose this R-rated movie and not that R-rated movie? I have no idea. I mean, I have my personal conviction about why, but you're going to have to develop your personal conviction about why. You see, legalism is when my personal opinion and conviction I force to be your personal opinion and conviction. You see, when I turn my personal opinion into a community rule, we've now passed from grace into law and legalism. And I can't stand, I can't point it to you in the Bible. So think about, this gets introduced even back in Genesis, Adam and Eve. When Adam gets the command from God, God says, Adam, there's all these trees you can eat up. You're free to eat of all these trees, but there's this one that I don't want you to eat. Don't eat it, because when you eat it, you'll die. And that's a good reason God gave us to not eat it, right? Death is not desirable at that point. So when Adam communicates this command to Eve, what does he say? He says, Eve, God said, don't touch that. He said, well, God said, don't eat that tree. But Adam said, well, but you know what, Eve? Just don't even touch it. 
So Adam added on his personal conviction. God had never said, Eve, don't touch it. God had never said, Adam, don't touch it. But Adam, because of his own personal, maybe his own personal wisdom, like, I don't even want to get near it. I don't want to touch it. I'm not going to even mess with it. So that's where we get into legalism. I mean, and we can go on from there. Homeschooling versus public school versus private school. Music choices. Dancing. Can I watch Harry Potter movies or read the Harry Potter books? Can there be a Christmas tree in my house? So you get the point as I delineate all of these debatable issues. But that's all fine, Pastor. But tell me what we do about it. Well, I'm glad you asked because that's what chapter 14 is about. And chapter 14, we read the word Lord. I counted it. Now I can't remember how many times. I want to say maybe eight times in this little section that we read the word Lord. But however many times it's written, what we find out is that the key to understanding how to handle these things in our community is the Lordship of Jesus Christ. See, because not only are there debatable issues in the church, but there are also Christians at different places in their walk with God. Did you see that? Still, as we belabor in verse one, hang with me. It says, receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to disputes over doubtful things. So we don't want to turn church into a debate club. And in church, there are those that are strong in the faith. Not that they have strong faith, but they're strong in the faith. They've been walking with the Lord a long time. They're understanding grace. They have a good amount of knowledge and understanding. They've been around a while. They're Bible readers, and they are maybe stronger in the faith. But then there are those that are weak in the faith. Do you remember a day when you were weak in the faith? For some of you, that's today. That's you. I remember when I first got saved, like I was still doing things that I shouldn't have been doing. I didn't have a Bible teaching church. We were just saved out of you know, my life in the world. And there's some things I knew and some things I, a lot of things I didn't know. And I was just weak in my faith. I was new. I was young. And so Paul is bringing together the weak and the strong. He says, for one, verse two says, for one believes he may eat all things, but he was weak, eats only vegetables. So he highlights what the issue was for them. For them, it was an issue about food. You had the Jews with strict religious requirements in terms of what they could eat and how it could be prepared. I mean, when we go to Israel today, we eat in the dining hall there at the hotel. And if the hotel is kosher, which most of them are, there are certain things, they don't mix their meat and their dairy. So if you go to breakfast, you might have a dairy at breakfast, but you won't have meat at breakfast. Don't get bacon with your coffee. You know, you're going to have milk in it. That stuff doesn't mix. And there's no butter at dinner time because at dinner time, there's no dairy. There's meat, but there's no dairy. And when they had to eat meat, it had to be prepared a certain way. Very strict in the Old Testament. You never eat meat with the blood still in it. It has to be prepared in a kosher way. And so because they didn't know maybe where this meat was coming from, then they would just say, you know what? We're just not going to eat meat. We're living here in Rome and this is not Jerusalem. And so people around here don't know how to cook kosher. So you know what we should do? So to avoid any possible mistake of maybe eating meat that wasn't prepared right, we're just going to be vegetarians. This was not a nutritional choice. You understand that, right? This is not a choice because, you know, cows are all fed with antibiotics. and all. It's not what we're talking about. We're talking about religious ramifications and pleasing God based on what they eat. So this one group, probably the Jews, are feeling like they need to restrict and only eat vegetables just for their own safety in terms of pleasing God. But then there were those pagans, those immoral people that were not Jewish, that were just these immoral people that were living in Rome that got saved. 
They come to the church. They have no conviction about what they eat, how it's prepared. They could care less. And they try to have a communion dinner together. They try to have an agape meal. And the, the Gentiles are all bringing steak and barbecue, right? Pork, you know. And the Jews are going, we can't eat with you. Like, you see how it's their individual convictions are causing them to have broken fellowship. Food. So much revolves around food. And in that other church, Paul's going, how can we bring these people together? Because this group is bringing barbecue to the agape meal, and this group doesn't want to eat that. And so they're avoiding each other. They're staying away from each other. So he says, look, there's one that's going to believe that he can eat everything. And I enjoy eating everything sometimes. Now notice this too. But he was weak, eats only vegetables. Wouldn't you expect that to be the wrong way around? Wouldn't you expect that we tend to see the one who is more restrictive as the one that's more spiritual? Well, that person doesn't do this and they only wear that and and they must be more spiritual. But to Paul in that day, he sees the understanding of grace. Hey, we're saved by grace, not by food restrictions. And the ones that get that, I mean, somebody say amen that you enjoy barbecue. Aren't we glad we don't live under those restrictions of the law? We're saved by grace. And we move from law into wisdom. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. We move our lives from following a strict set of rules that imposed on us to trying to figure out what's wisdom in the way we live on a daily basis. So this is the problem that they're facing. One believes he can eat all things. The one who is weak, who doesn't get grace, who hasn't crossed that line, who's still struggling with the convictions. I mean, think about Peter when he sees that blanket come down in the book of Acts and the words rise, Peter, kill and eat. He's like, not so. I've never eaten any of that stuff. Like, no way am I going to eat that. But hey, what I've called clean, you know, what I've allowed, you can partake of. And he was speaking in that chapter of the Gentiles specifically, but also of the dissolving of these laws about what we can and can't eat and do. And because grace is the order of the day, grace and truth. So this was causing a division among them. Look at verse three. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. And let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received them. So here we have these people in the body of Christ coming from different backgrounds, and God is saying, come to me, come to me from wherever you are, from whatever background you've been. You've been a Jehovah's Witness. You've been a Seventh-day Adventist. You've been a Mormon. You've been whatever, a fundamentalist. Come to me. Not come to church. Come to church is good, but come to church is useless if you haven't come to him. And it says, God has received that person, that person who's still figured it out, that person who's new and understanding grace because they grew up in legalism. He says, you got to receive them. I coach soccer for years. I coach soccer for years. And, and on the soccer field, soccer is called the beautiful game. And when it works well, it's a beautiful game. But you got players, especially rec league, you got players in that field. Some kids, you know, they don't want to be there. Their parents said they need exercise. And so they joined up but they could care less. They'd rather be home playing computer games or whatever. Then there's other kids that, and they're the all-stars. They're like, they're going to college. You know, they're only six, but they're looking for the scholarship, right? And they are all in, all in. And so you put them on the field together and you've got the stronger kids who are getting it. They know how to pass. They know how to play the game. But then there's the weaker players on the field. They're not as good. Their skills aren't as good. They don't get the game. They just don't understand where they're supposed to stand. So they just run around following everybody else. And the stronger players, what happens? They get frustrated with the weaker players. Why don't you get it? You're messing the whole thing up. Well, you know what? I'm just not going to pass the ball to them anymore. Just forget about them. I'm going to write them off. And that's what the word here means. To despise means to just write them off. 
I'm just going to write them off. And Paul says, don't write them off because God's not written them off. Instead of using your strength to criticize their weakness, that they don't understand grace, that they still think they have to wear a certain thing. And by the way, can I just say, as we talk about just the simple issue of clothing, I am so thankful the folks in here that wear shirt and tie and jacket to church, I love that you do that. And the folks that wear flip-flops and Hawaiian shirts, I love that you do that. And may it always be that way in here, right? Because it's like that soccer field. It's those that have this great willingness and ability to just walk in grace and enjoy all these things. You know, just be patient with people that are still working out their legalism and still struggling with freedom. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. So it goes back and forth as God has received them. The other thing I find that's interesting when it comes to these relationships, when you get someone who enjoys their freedom and they're enjoying all the liberty they have in Christ, then there's you who grew up a certain way and you don't know why you grew up that way, but you've been taught not to enjoy that freedom. Like you can't, you know, in church, like you've been taught, you just stand in church, you can't actually like sway to the music. You cannot clap or express in any way. And then you come to Calvary Chapel, there's people going, oh, Lord, you know, arms are going, and oh, I love you, Lord. And, and they're enjoying the freedom, right? And so you're going, you're like, you want to do that. Like, you want to raise your hands in church, or you want to express, but you, you feel like, well, I grew up, that just feels wrong to me. And so then, because you're stuck with following this obligatory rule that you don't really like, but you feel kind of something inside about it, then you can easily begin to be upset and to belittle that other person. Well, they must not be saved because you really want to do it. Really, what's at the bottom of that is you're jealous. And isn't that what Paul said the Gentiles would do to the Jews? That their freedom would make the Jews jealous. If you've come from a legalistic background, you may struggle with jealousy because you really want to do what you see us free people doing. And I'd encourage you to do it, (laughs) as long as it's not sin. (laughs) But then on the other side, there's those of us that enjoy this freedom, but then we see those people among us that maybe come from a more restrictive background, and they're going, well, no, really, the only way to dress for church is a shirt and tie, or really, you know, you really should wear an ankle-length skirt. And then you start to go, oh, man, maybe I'm not saved. Like, now I feel guilty about the fact that I'm not dressed like that person seems so spiritual because they have all these restrictions in their life. And the free one then starts to feel guilty and get pulled back into legalism and laws. Well, watch what Paul says. He says, who are you to judge another servant? To his own master, he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand for God is able to make him to stand. So he brings us back to who's the master anyway? Who decides skirt length? Who's the judge? Who gets to determine these things? God is the judge. He's the one that makes these decisions. So isn't it wonderful when you just get to be free to let people serve God and work it out with him? You are now free to love people because if you're too busy judging people, you can't love them. I mean, precious moment in my life when our kids were young, Jacob and Madeline, I don't remember what they were doing, but Jacob was trying to help Madeline out with something. She was trying to get her to do something we were all around and she turned to him and she said, you're not the boss of me. And we kind of all looked at each other and said, yeah, she's right, isn't she? But isn't that true in church? You're not the boss of me. Now we have a place in each other's lives, 
to share the Word of God. I mean, I've had situations around here where one person did something that displeased another person and that person really got after, person A got after person B and laid the hammer down on them. It wasn't a biblical thing, it was a preference. And I remember talking into that situation and saying, look, the last thing you want to do is create a situation where everybody lives to please you. It would keep you very busy to be all of our masters, wouldn't it? I mean, it's a lot of work to have a lot of slaves. So the wonderful truth that we learn is, look, people are accountable to God. Again, we have a role to share with them, to encourage them, open the Bible and say, here's what I see, but you got to give people freedom. How many of you have come to a new conviction or a new place that you weren't five years ago, right? We're all growing. A number of years ago, another example where this passage has ministered to me so many times we had an office down in Palmyra. It used to be called Common Ground. It was down there next to the gas station on 15 by the BB&T Bank. And across the street is the Methodist church there. And there was a new pastor at the Methodist church. And it was a female pastor. And she had just rolled into town. And, and I said, well, I'm going to go over and introduce myself. Neighborly thing to do. So I go over and introduce myself. And you guys know the debates in churches about the roles of women in leadership and because women be pastors or not. And this is debated in a lot of places. And so I go over and I just say hi and I welcome her to, to the community. And she says to me, first thing she says is, so do you believe that women should be pastors? I'm like, oh, hi, good to see you too, right? Because I could tell, you know, she'd been around the block with this discussion. She'd probably had a lot of ungrace in her life and had a lot of arguments about these things and said, look, let's just settle this right now, time out. It doesn't matter what I think about whether women should be pastors. My job is just to love you. You have to read the Bible and be fully convicted and convinced in your mind if God is okay with women being pastors. I have to read the Bible and be convicted in my mind. You see, I can't determine what's right and wrong for her. God has to do that for her. And she has to work that process out with God. That sets me free not to judge her. She's not serving me. I mean, we serve each other in a general sense, but not in terms of determining how to live our lives. We're all experts in what other people should do with their lives, aren't we? This is a great passage, isn't it? And God is so much more gracious. To his own master, he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. See, we would like to cut people down, but God is working on standing people up. And when we try to be the Holy Spirit, sometimes we feel like the Holy Spirit's taking a vacation, and now I got to step in to help. And we want to chop people off. But God is at work. We're talking about believers that are in different places. God is at work in our lives, isn't he, folks? One person esteems one day above another, verse 5 says, and another esteems every day alike. Let each be fully convinced in his own mind. I mean, I've talked to people that say, hey, the whole key to salvation is keeping the Sabbath. The Sabbath is Saturday. And there are denominations and pseudo-Christian cults that say, hey, the only day to worship is Saturday. That's the day to worship. If you don't worship Saturday, man, I'm not sure you're saved. You're a believer if you don't worship Saturday. They esteem one day more important than any others. But then we come here, we got Wednesday night Bible study, Monday night Bible study, we got Sunday, we got Sunday night, we've got something all week. And I say, hey, every day is a great day to worship the Lord. Jesus is the Lord of my life. He is the Sabbath. In him, I find rest. I'm not bound to legal restrictions. I'm not bound to keeping a set of laws. I'm free to worship every day of the week. One sees one day over another. Another sees every day alike. And Paul says, look, 
you got to chug it out with the Lord in your mind. You have to be fully convinced in your own mind. That's why if you're keeping a restriction or you're keeping some rule and you don't even know why you're doing it, that's why you're going to be jealous because you haven't worked it out yourself. I mean, I've sat with people to talk about head coverings. A lot of women in some church, they choose to wear a head covering. And then we had a woman come here out of that background and we sat down and she said, what do I do about head covering? You know, my family is brethren, but nobody in the church wears them and I feel kind of awkward and out of place. And so we had a great conversation. We opened the Bible, just began to look at, you know, how to address in a grace and truth way, head coverings. You have to be convinced in your own mind. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. And he who does not observe the day to the Lord, he does not observe it. So you sit down on the Sabbath day, you're, oh, Lord, I'm so thankful for the Sabbath, for a rest day from six o'clock in the evening on Friday to six o'clock Saturday. I don't go to work. I don't do anything. Lord, thank you so much for the Sabbath day. And then we go, oh, Lord, I'm so thankful for Wednesday night Bible study. And I'm thankful for Sunday coming to church together. Lord, I'm so thankful. And I can do this to the Lord. You see, that's a great principle. He who observes the day, observes it to the Lord. You know, if, if you can get dressed and look in the mirror and say, Lord, I'm wearing this outfit for you. And you can feel that the Lord is pleased with what you're wearing, then praise the Lord. But if you look in the mirror and you go, you know, I don't know, maybe if Jesus was right here, would he say, hey, that's a great outfit you're wearing. I really like that. I mean, Jesus is more concerned with the heart. You know that. But you get the point that I'm saying. You know, can you sit down with your six pack and say, Lord, I'm going to tie one on for you. Like there's just something that doesn't work that way, right? So that's a great principle. How about if the Lord, you invite him to your living room, said, Lord, we're going to watch a movie together tonight. Would the Lord have to hide his eyes? See, if you do it, you do it to the Lord. And you do it as his servant with his approval or not. And if you don't do it, if you choose to enjoy it, you enjoy it giving thanks to the Lord. And if you choose not to enjoy it, you choose to give it up, you go, I'm going to give this up for the Lord. And both people are right. Both people have their bounds in, we're doing this for the Lord. You see, he who eats, eats to the Lord, he gives God thanks. And he who does not eat to the Lord, he does not eat and gives God thanks. The Jew says, I'm not really interested in pork. Lord, thank you that I don't need to eat pork. And then the barbecue people go, oh, Lord, thank you for barbecue. It's really good. I love a good steak. So when the person who's restrictive gives it up, says, hey, Lord, I'm giving this up for you. You know, cigarettes, there's another one. Can I smoke? Can a Christian smoke? Is smoking going to send me to hell? We just usually say, it's not going to send you to hell. You can't look at a book of the Bible that says, God says, don't smoke. It's not going to send you to hell, but it might get you to heaven quicker. So can a Christian smoke or not? You know, can you say, hey, I'm going to light this up for the Lord? Or you could say, you know what, Lord, I just feel like this body is your temple and I don't want to pollute it with that nonsense. And I just want to be free from that. So Lord, I'm going to give that up. I'm going to give up smoking for you. Praise the Lord. I give up smoking for the Lord. So you see how this works. Verse seven gives the principle for none of us lives to himself and no one dies to himself. You don't operate in your own little personal kingdom vacuum. Everything you do is before the Lord. That's what Paul's saying. This is that issue of we're always in the presence of the Lord. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. Now, what's he talking about living and dying? He's talking about when we live, when we choose to live it up. We're going to live it up for the Lord. Man, I'm going to enjoy and embrace my flip-flops on Sunday morning. 
Really, if you really want to confuse us, wear a shirt, tie, and flip-flops. That'll really blow us out of the water. And no one will know who you are. But you say, hey, I feel free to enjoy this. Then enjoy it. Live it up. But you might say, you know, I feel like I've got to die to this. I've got to die to myself in this area. You know, with the area of alcohol, some of you got to die to yourself in that area. Because you can't have one drink. Me? I can have a glass of wine today, and I don't think about it for another year. It just does nothing for me. I have no interest. I worked in bars way too long. The smell of beer just disgusts me now. So it's not a problem for me. But for you, beer has a whole different response. One beer leads to two, leads to a six-pack, leads to a case, leads to two cases, and, and you're done. So you might have to say, you know, i got to die to myself in this area. So if you live, if you live it up, you live it up for the Lord. If you lay it down you lay it down for the Lord. Therefore, whichever way you choose, you live or die, we're the Lord's. For to this end, Christ did both. He died, laid it down, and then he rose and lived again. And he took it up. So Christ is the Lord of both sides and both options in our lives. Some things, got to lay this down, got to give this up because of conviction. Got to lay down R-rated movies. Why? Because I don't like what they do to my brain. See, we move from law to wisdom. Paul said, look, all things are lawful. All things are lawful. We're not under the law. But you can say, oh, so I got the freedom to do it. Not if it's sin. And just because you're free to do it doesn't mean you should. I mean, I had that aha moment with my kids a number of years ago in parenting as they got to be teenagers. We got to that point where they would say, well, dad, can I do this? Dad, can I do that? And that's what we say, God, can I do this? Can I do that? And the answer I realized was not necessarily can you, because maybe you can can I sleep over to a friend's house, stay up all night, then come home early in the morning and, and do my work? Well, maybe you can, but maybe you shouldn't. So it goes from not just can I, but should I? But why do you judge your brother? Or why do you show contempt for your brother? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For as it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow. What's that next couple of words say? To me. Not to you, me, but to him, me. Every knee doesn't bow to Steve. Every knee doesn't bow to Chris. Every knee doesn't bow to Gail. Every knee bows to me, the Lord says, and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, here's the conclusion of this section, that each of us shall give an account of himself to God. So Paul kind of concludes this section saying, hey, look, when it comes to how we deal with each other in these matters, we've got to set each other free. God is the master. God is the one who calls the shots in their life. God is the one they're accountable to. And I can be free to love them and not to judge them. And in the midst of that, God's going to work it out in their lives. So what's my role? My role is to set them free because I'm going to give an account of my life to God too. But this is the thing to remember. I mean, put this on your refrigerator, put it on your Bible, underline it in your Bible. I can't fix you. I can't change you. Have you realized that you don't have the power to do that? What I do have the power over is I get to love you. And that's what I'm accountable to God for. When I die, God's not going to ask me, so did you manage to fix Stuart at church? I mean, the guy was a mess and he took some liberties or he had some restrictions. He didn't have grace. That's what you get for sitting in the front, Stuart. <laughs> did you fix him? Is God's going to say, look, I counted on you to fix him. God's not going to say that. He's going to only ask me one thing. I know Stuart and you were different. You come from different backgrounds. He's smart. You're not. All that. 
Um, but did you love him? Did you love him? And Stuart, did you love Pastor Steve? That's all he's going to ask. So in our attempts to judge others, we actually miss pleasing our master in the first place. Kind of crazy how that works, isn't it? Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather resolve this, not to put a stumbling block or a cause to fall in our brother's way. Father, we thank you so much for the freedom we have in Christ, not freedom to use our freedom for sin, but freedom to enjoy all the fullness of what you have for us to enjoy, knowing that we've been saved by grace and not by works. It's in Jesus' name we pray. All God's people said, Amen. Amen.